This is Stena. Thank you for tuning in to the Identity In Me podcast, or In Me for short. This is part two of my conversation with Kevin Pajaro Marinas, who is the Assistant Director of Equity and Inclusion at Phillips Exeter Academy. I start this episode with the continuation of my story about going to my first college party. I didn't use the terminology in the episode, but it was definitely culture shock to say the least. I was told on a Friday night, yo, there's a party. And I'm like, word, I'm gonna go to my first college party, let's go. So I show up and I'm like, all right, where's the music? Where's the DJ? Nothing. Just a bunch of people crowded around a cake. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, okay, so this is how we're getting started. Eventually the music's gonna come on. Right. No music ever. It was all about (laughs) the keg. I I was so disappointed. Like after a few weeks of this, it dawned on me. I'm like, yo, if we're gonna have parties the way we're familiar with partying, we're gonna have to do this ourselves because. Every party is the same. It's a bunch of white students huddled around a keg or an ice luge getting wrecked. And yeah, sure, I drank a lot in college. That took time to come about. And by the way, a lot of my drinking came about from being bored out of my mind. So we had to be resourceful and figure out how to throw the sort of parties that we wanted to have. Um, Was your experience similar at URI in terms of like going into an atmosphere and just not understanding how folks socialized or partied? Yeah, um, so it's so funny, man. In undergrad for the listeners, um, even though I am part of a a Latino fraternity and all this, that, and the third, a lot of people are like, yo, Kev, you used to to probably rage back in the day. And in undergrad, I barely partied, man. Like it wasn't, I just didn't because I feel like I always had so much on the line and at stake. I was like, I have to, I have to study. But the few times that I did party, uh, when I turned 21, um, actually, I went to a local bar that was like the, the the signature bar that a lot of the kids from school went to. And I went there for, the, for one of the first times. And I, I was just looking around and I'm like, yo, back when I used to party, even if it was the family basement parties or like going to different parties that uh, different friends had, even if he was in the basement, hot as hell, people would still be dancing with like a sense of rhythm, whether it be bachata, reggaeton, salsa, whatever, right? Like you you could you could find somebody that either had a, a rhythmic two-step or, <laughs> you know, whatever, right? You, you knew that the folks in the room had rhythm by and large. And then when I went to this other spot in college that was predominantly white, right? I'm, I'm, I'm coming in, the music is blasting, but I'm just looking around and I'm like, yo, People are just like jumping around hella sweaty. So like, what, what is my role here? How do I, how do I dance to Skrillex? I'm like, I don't know what, I don't know what the, I don't know what the maneuver is here, right? How do I finesse to let people know that I'm legit, that I legitimately belong here, but it wasn't like I belong here because I'm over 21. I was trying to figure out how do I belong in a sea of people who understand like music and partying way different than I understand it. So, it, yeah, man, it was wild. And even even in grad school, like you go to local bars that I was I went to grad school at Michigan State and in, in East Lansing, I'm like, oh, it's, it's kind of the same deal. Like white folks kind of do the same stuff in most places. So, yeah, partying in college was radically different than what I had grown up learning 
what partying is in terms of the adults that I grew up around. But even to your question, like I can put it in another context, right? Because we don't have to think about it as partying. But even I'll never forget this. When I first got to college, I was dead set on majoring in pre-med and I had gotten in on that. I was in the honors program. It was all gravy. I was like, I'm about to live the dream. And I, I sat in my first bio 101 class, commonly known as like the weeder course or whatever. And I sat there and I was like, I was listening to this lady lecture and I'm like, yo, I don't, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. And then I attended the lab and I'm like, I don't, I don't know what's up. And me being an extrovert, I had the advantage of being a people person. So I, you know, I, I hit up the person next to me. I couldn't even tell you their name. I'm like, yo, some white person, like, yo, I don't, do you understand what's happening? And they're like, yeah, th- I mean, I, like, didn't you learn this in high school? Like this, this is, you know, this, this is a review for me. And I'm like, how do you understand the language that's being spoken? Like, it's the same English. I just don't know what terminology she's using. You, mm. you feel me? I'm like, what's going on? Mm. And so I learned there that I'm like, it wasn't even just the cultural setting of a party that was different. It was even in the way that people understood academic language and rigor. Because I am I was able to be salutatorian at high school. But I learned real quick in college that, like, pe- people had resources to have tutors, to have teachers who actually cared because they weren't marred by being under-resourced and all these different things. So I'm like, when you have that level of investment, it's no wonder why you understand bio and you're able to thrive and become a doctor. Because maybe I could have been a dope scientist, but mm-hmm. I didn't have that many people invested in my success. And maybe I couldn't do all the after-school things because we didn't have them or I didn't have the time. So I'm like, damn. So, if, so whether it's culturally, academically, professionally, there's so many ways to address your question around like, being shocked about the difference in atmosphere. So I'm going to admit this to my audience right now, right? So I'm going in a completely different direction than um, the initial (laughs) intent of this episode, which was to talk about positionality. And there will be an opportunity for us to do that perhaps a little bit later on, because I have a feeling we can talk for a while. Where my energy is right now, as a good interviewer, I'm sticking with this matter of how students of color, particularly from low-income backgrounds, um, are introduced or oriented to college and the challenges that we encounter when we get to predominantly white institutions. I'm thinking about my own journey right now. Thank God I dated this young woman in high school. Um, She gets a shout out in the episode, Tamika Downs. During my junior year, we went on a school or a class field trip. I had tried to get her number in previous years and she she sunned me in front of my my boy. She didn't give me her number. It was bad, man. I'm like, so can I get your number? And she's like, nah. She didn't even give me the wrong number. She just said no. And I had to like eat it in the hallway. But anyway, so I was a junior, a little bit more confident in myself. Anyway, let me just get to the story. So she said to me at one point during a phone call, you're really smart. Why aren't you in more honors classes? And I said, because I ain't trying to act white. And she said, what? I said, yeah, like, I'm not trying to act white. Like, I'm taking these basic level classes, college level, with all the other Black and Hispanic students. Yeah. And I'm going to get good grades and still be able to go to college while you work harder with the white students. Because she was in honors and AP classes. She's like, you sound real stupid right now. You need to be in these upper level classes in order to go to a more competitive college. So I'm like, man, she's just talking shit. So I went to my guidance counselor and asked her this. I remember this so well. So I go up to this woman and I go, all right, so here's what my friend is telling me 
about the the need to take honors classes and its relationship to my uh, ability to get into a more competitive school. And she said, yeah, your friend is right. I'm looking at this lady. I'm like, were you gonna were you gonna tell me this right. at some point? Like, because when I got to the school, yeah. you told me, and I was a straight A and B student. And when I say B, two Bs, math and science, always. And um, she told me when I got to high school, start in the lower level classes. And if it's too easy for you, you'll move up to the honors level classes. There was no check-in though. What I learned later on in high school was that the white students were advised to start in the higher level classes and move down if it was too easy, like systemically. That, is, that was a talking point to us students of color, um, particularly Black and Latinx versus our white counterparts. So when you were talking there, I'm like, when I got to honors classes, I finally had essays to write. I had research projects to do. And if I hadn't done any of that prior to going to Clark, I wouldn't have succeeded there. My writing skills were pretty good by the time I got to Clark. I had peers, other Black students who had to leave because they couldn't write an essay. So the way we're tracked in high school and like the access to what we have matters significantly when we get to college. But anyway, and, and the additional point I want to make is the importance of pre-orientation programs to bridge the gap. I was a peer advisor for uh, three years at an orientation program in college. And it was so important for those students to start to hear about what they were going to encounter. And so when I hear pushback from people about these pre-orientation programs and the preferential treatment, like it's clear to me that they don't understand all of the ways in which we are disadvantaged when we come from particular communities going into college. So what's, um, do you have experience working with pre-orientation programs? Yeah, not, not extensive. I mean, not extensive, but I remember in undergrad, I did, I was part of uh, the orientation team as an undergrad. So I, I mean, that was the extent of what I did. And I, and I found that even being enthusiastic and, and them seeing another kid who was not white, right. Be like, talking about all these different resources on campus, talking about the, the pre-orientation program or the bridge program that I went through, talent development through URI that offers you a scholarship and all these um, college-ready skills that will help you matriculate come the fall. I, I saw that so many people were like, whoa, like I can't believe you're doing all these things and you're only, you know, you're only a sophomore going into your junior year, right? And like, it, it, was, it, was, it was dope to know that I was having that effect. But I think at that point, I had already developed a consciousness or I was starting to around um, social justice, DEI stuff and around how, systemically speaking, people who look like me, people who look like you are not advised, whether it be by guidance counselors, teachers, other loved ones, right, because they don't know or because they don't believe in your capacity to, to succeed in those and whatever and whatever recommendations they make. I was learning that like, yo, a lot of people for the first time are hearing that this is a thing. I, I wonder why I thought it was regular that people would know this at X age, but that wasn't the case. And so when I was an orientation leader, for me, it was important to be like, all right, how many resources and how many things can I talk about, especially to the kids of color that they'll remember so that they can go utilize them when they get to campus and not be like me, who didn't know about 
what office hours truly were, right? Like I knew that the professors were there, that you could access them, but like not that that relationship can then turn into a recommendation for a graduate program or for another another program on campus, an internship, just so many different things. So that that was like my one concrete experience experience, and then um, throughout my the rest of the time in college and in other pockets professionally, I kind of you know had a hand in different pre-orientation things, but. I mean, are, are they important? Absolutely. Like the, the more firm you can cement a pre-orientation program, especially for students who are already marginalized systemically, that those being kids of color, usually um, it, it could really be the make or break for how they decide to um, cement their college experience as a thing that they understand that they could succeed at. Pre-orientation programs help marginalized students, especially kids of color, experience college in a way that makes it meaningful for them and something that makes makes it for them possible that they think that they can succeed as opposed to college being another barrier that they can't overcome. So yeah, man, it's super important. And I'm glad that I was an orientation leader for the time that I was, but I, I think now knowing what I know, I'm like, even sometimes those programs don't feel like enough because the infrastructure needs to go beyond pre- pre-orientation yeah. and more resources need to be made for those students. So. And it's so important for students uh, to come into a college campus or any community that has a pre-orientation program. It's so important for them to develop community in those programs. So like connecting with adults, connecting with other students who are experiencing the same thing, because it's very easy to start feeling like you do not belong. Uh, and, And yeah, imposter syndrome, long before I learned the term, uh, I definitely felt that early on in college. I'm also thinking about something else you said earlier in the episode, um, the community in which you grew up. Also, your your mom uh, was like, yeah, you know, we're better off living in community with other uh, Black and Latinx folks. Uh, this is going to be a lot better for us. You're smiling because you're aware of the spirit of my question. Right. <laughs> um. <laughs> I'm laughing because like my my mom as a as a woman who when she first came to the states she's she's like ah, what the hell is English um so so it, it's funny to think that she could make a drastic decision around where we would move because that would also imply or there would be an assumption there's an assumption made that she had the money to maneuver in the way that she wanted to so the the short answer is no she she didn't choose to live in a place that was predominantly black and brown. I think the, the, her her like material conditions or economic reality was that like she could only afford particular spaces to live, right? Her and my dad at that time before they were divorced. So Providence, Rhode Island ended up being a more affordable option, but like the, the district, the neighborhood that I was in was predominantly black and brown. And so that that's what I knew. Um, so that they consciously chose to not be around white people no, I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, but you know what's funny now that you mentioned that question, and I just I went to go visit my dad recently. So this is and I and I and I talk about this all the time, or I think about it all the time too. Uh, my dad, obviously, he's been in the states for a long time now. He's been working thirty, you know, thirty plus years of his life that he's been able to work. I um, mean, he's from Colombia, emigrated from Colombia, and my mom from Dominican Republic. Uh, my dad now remarried, you know, had my little sister. He's also a stepfather. Um, 
he lives in a he lives in a very conservative area of Florida. And one day he said to me, uh, he was like, Kevin, because uh, he saw me with these piercings. So for the listeners, I have a couple, I have one, two, three, four nose, four nose piercings. And so when he saw them, right, uh, my dad in, in the classic machismo era that he grew up in was like, oh, Kevin, are they going to let you wear those at work? Like, are, mm-hmm. they're not going to. I'm not gonna want you to take your piercings out and i'm like oh papi no like this is like they don't care they i interviewed with you know uh, a tie and a button up the entire time with these nose rings and nobody ever made a comment and as a matter of fact some people had piercings themselves so like it was chill and so then he started talking about how you know now that i have a job with a better salary that i should be aspiring to own a home and to mm-hmm. live in an area live in an affluent area where people have nice cars because I, you know, and now that I have more money, I want to invest in a nice car in the future because I don't want to be the only one without a nice car. So my dad, I figured out, is very invested in the in the American dream, but through the idea that we should assimilate or come to terms with the fact that, like, we should not want to look poor because that communicates something very ugly about who we are. And we're not that. So we need to do everything we can to show the opposite where obviously I have a different set of investments. I'm like, that that doesn't matter. But my dad is like, I worked my ass off for 30 plus years and I finally at, I'm at where I'm at. How are you going to tell me any different? And, and it's tough to have that conversation because you my dad, right? But I'm not going to be like, well, dad, let me tell you about capitalism and meritocracy. Mm-hmm. He didn't want to hear all that because mm-hmm. it, it worked out, right? So I'm always at a crossroads about my dad being so in love with impressing white folks in particular because that, those that's the area that he lives in now. Versus me, where I'm like, I I have an advanced degree and I've learned some things and I've been in different spaces that my dad has growing up and I'm afforded a different a different type of consciousness that that doesn't allow me to think about trying to impress white people more so than me trying mm. to live life on my own terms and be in community with black and brown people and not look at them as like, oh, these folks don't you know folks that you didn't go to school and get your bachelor's or master's so you're not as good as me. Sometimes my dad can get in the tendency of that. He doesn't see it. He looks at it as you're lazy. You didn't want to work hard enough, but you can always work hard. You can always choose a different path. And I'm like, baby, systemically, sometimes the path, the path that you're thinking of ain't available to everybody. So I know that was a long winded way to say that while before they couldn't choose to opt in or opt out of living in white spaces. Now, for my dad, at least living in a predominantly white space is is a badge of honor. Right. It's it's a way and cement his credibility in a country that would even then, even if he made a hundred K a year would still dispose of him. And I don't think he sees it that way, but. Um, and so I, I have to ask a quick question. It's a yes or no. Were you yeah. allowed to sit in your living room on the sofas that were covered in plastic? I don't think in the States we had plastic, but I do remember plastic being on the couches in Dominican Republic. So you could only sit on those couches at a certain time of day and you can never take the plastic off. Don't ever take the plastic off. If you take the plastic off, it was lights out for you. But yeah. Yeah. And that's that, um, you know, the material thing you were talking about. Um, You know, now that you've made it, you got to get a car. And the way I experienced all of that um, growing up was, you know, the furniture, particularly the living room and the immaculate nature of the living room. I remember visiting one of my white friends in high school and seeing the way they got down in the living room. I'm like, oh, wow, y'all could like lay on the sofa and watch TV. That's so interesting. (laughs) 
Oh, gosh. Okay. And so the other thing you're talking about here is the respectability politics. And, you know, we remember Bill Cosby talking about pull up your pants and all that um, and the firestorm that came with that. And um, as you were talking about, you know, your, your dad's response to your piercings, I thought about um, all the fuss about my locks that my mom made for years. When I started growing locks, I'd hear a comment regularly when I went to visit her. Um, she even invoked my dead father. I'm like, your father wouldn't approve of this. But now I don't have locks anymore. Um, I'm doing something different with my hair. And I'm sure she'll make a comment about the part that I put in my little mini fro because I just can't rock with a regular, normal cookie cutter cut. It's just not what I'm doing. And so I guess the question to you here would be, um, as we wrap up this segment, in terms of respectability, when did you say to yourself, I am no longer adhering to the norms that were uh, taught to me and that were expected of me? I feel comfortable saying that, like, while I do feel cemented in, like, my independence and my agency to not pander to white people or other people in a quote-unquote respectable way, there are also ways that I still adhere to those norms because I know that adhering to them in certain moments or in certain spaces will grant me the leverage I need to do the things that I'm trying to do. So in a meeting, right, like I might be able to talk in a way that people will consider lax, super chill. I might not use professional jargon all the time, but in certain moments I might decide to, and I know people know it as code switching, but I think I'm speaking more to like in just my everyday behavior. I think in some ways I still choose to adhere to certain norms because I know that it'll grant me a particular form of leverage in ways that I might need to, to do something or to, to support somebody who's marginalized, whatever the case may be. So for me to sit here and be like, I, I decided that this was a point that I would no longer start, you know, performing in a respectable way. Uh, I, I think in, in a lot of ways I still do, but I, I'm more selective about it now. Um, and when I'm in community with people who I know that love me and care for me and, and hold space for me to be messy as a person, that's a very different side of Kevin than the Kevin that I show up to at work. Cause I want to be able to say, sit here and be like, yeah, I decided after college, I was like, you know, screw, screw everybody, screw white people. Da, da, da. And I had that little moment back in like 2016, I was very active on Facebook and I was writing, I was writing all the time about my status armed with all this knowledge. I was like, whiteness is problematic. People are problematic. Da, 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 da. But then I, I also had to reckon with like, Sometimes I do adhere to certain norms professionally, culturally, or whatever, because I know that people will grant me a pass in certain situations so that I can I can get that job or that I can get this raise or that I can get this opportunity, right? That if I were to show up in another way, I wouldn't. Yeah, I, I think respectability is still there sometimes, but I'm able to maneuver it much better because I have a language for it. I understand it and I and I also know to leverage it in ways to benefit me. And I know that the the, the the topic today was supposed to be positionality and we're not necessarily talking about it, but it I'd be remiss not to mention it because my position as a cisgender heterosexual man who's also light-skinned, right, allows me to move about the world in ways that other people cannot. So if I look different, if I was the dark-skinned Black person um, who, who was bigger, who, who was perceived as a threat, no matter how much I try to assimilate in certain contexts or in certain situations, people would still deem me as someone who's bad, suspicious, 
unprofessional, all the things. So yeah, all, all that to say is I think it's complicated. And also I wouldn't say that I, I am free from adhering to whiteness in ways that will benefit me because I think it's still there in some ways. All right. And so you did me a favor there as a, as a guest, you um, allowed for a smooth segue to the topic that we are going to discuss in this episode, which was positionality. If uh, folks are intrigued, what they'll have to do is tune in to the episode where we do talk about that. And I'm making an assumption here that you're going to be willing to have another conversation with me where we can talk about that in more depth. Yes? Absolutely. No pressure. Don't make me look bad on the podcast. Thank God this ain't live because you could have been like, nah, man, I'm busy. For the record, I'm definitely down on the record now. All right. Hey, Kevin, thank you so much uh, for coming on, dropping jewels. Um, This was a really fun conversation, especially given that I could relate to a lot of what you were saying, actually all of what you were saying, Um, even though our names may be different. You know, if we share enough of the same identities and grew up in similar circumstances, our experiences tend to be very similar. We really covered the bases in this episode, huh? There were a few notable themes that you may have picked up, but a lot of it falls under systemic racism. I mean, sure, Kevin and I appear to be doing pretty well in life. Our parents who were immigrants came here with far less, yet here we are working at one of the world's premier boarding schools. We definitely came up, there's no debating that. The problem is many others in our communities don't share a similar story because the schools they attended were either poorly funded by property taxes and or they attended quote unquote better schools only to be tracked into classes by race. I lobbied to be in honors level classes. Nobody identified me as being worthy of moving up. And if I hadn't advocated for myself, I may not have even been admitted to the university I attended ultimately, since many of the best liberal arts colleges and universities assess course load. They want students who challenge themselves and among low income first generation students, there isn't a universal awareness of what's needed to get into the best colleges other than good grades. We also talked about how our families tend to be regarded for not being present at games and other extracurricular activities. Our parents didn't have high wages or generational wealth as a buffer, so they worked tirelessly to make ends meet. Capitalism often requires that of recent immigrants and other blue collar workers. Speaking of my own family, a premium wasn't placed on being present at games and activities. Where my parents are from, being at a game wasn't a sign of care. It was regarded as an invasion of our space, rather. And beyond that, as Kevin noted, survival was the priority. Going to the games didn't pay the bills or allow for needed rest. There's so much more to glean from our conversation if you paid close enough attention. Play back if you need to. Until the next episode of In Me, keep reflecting. Identity and the